Welcome to Nourishing Conversations with Nicole and Christine. We are doing a podcast based on the health and wellness community in the south of France, in the French Riviera, but also elsewhere in the world. Um, I'm a journalist. We worked together for a long time. She was my nutrition writer for health articles in my magazine. She's a board certified nutritionist. Christine, welcome. Thank you. And we talk about nutrition, we talk about health, we talk about wellness, and we interview local producers. So today is a very sweet episode. We are talking about honey, We're talking about bees, pollinators. What's great about honey, it's also an environmental issue. We have a huge loss of pollinators. I think we all pretty much know that. And we need to be careful with saving our pollinators, not killing them. And our food depends on bees. So we're going to get into that. We're also going to get into the nutritional aspects. And Christine's going to handle that. So you tell us what we'll look forward to in the nutritional part of honey. Yeah, well, the, in fact, there are over 300 different types of honey worldwide. And they will all differ in their color in their aroma and also in their nutrient content depending on the plant source where the bees are actually collecting their nectar from and honey can also be categorized into raw and processed honey and that will also change the nutrient content because when you destroy yeah when we we can get into this a little bit more later but basically the pasteurized store-bought stuff has been so heat-treated it's going to kill up a lot of the vitamins and minerals and enzymes there's only going to be the bits that we don't want left behind so they're going to so if people are thinking that honey is healthy they have to make sure they have the right kind of honey most definitely there are loads of studies actually showing that the processing will actually kill off the enzymes the vitamins the antioxidants in raw honey but the main minerals you were getting raw honey you get the vitamins a b and c but you'll get calcium manganese it's very rich in potassium magnesium zinc and iron honey has also been found to be quite useful for those with pollen allergies and there are ways that people have been using raw honey to try and get their bodies a little bit less symptomatic Um, so we'll have a look and talk about that a little bit later on in the program too So there's so many good things about honey that we're going to go into, but also honey fraud is actually a huge issue. And you might be surprised to know that if you are buying your honey in big grocery stores or drugstores, it's probably not even honey. There might not even be any honey in it. Um, So we're going to go into that. It's actually really shocking the numbers of absolute sugar syrup and flavors that are sold as honey. So Let's get into it. We are going to introduce our beekeeper and honey producer, Susie Rabier. She's originally from Australia, but she has been living here in France for over 20 years. And um, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nicole and Christine for inviting me. It's uh, great to have a chat with you today. What is it that got you into beekeeping? Well, funnily enough, I was inspired by a documentary film, a Swiss film that was made in 2012 by, um, his name is Imhoff, and the French, the English title of the film is More Than Honey. The French title was uh, Les Abeilles Les Hommes, and um, it, it looked at uh, honeybees in California, Switzerland, Austria, and China. Um, so it was very much looking at the different ways uh, from industrialized honey production in California, to um, in China where they've basically almost got no honeybees left in some places because of pesticides. And then the more artisanal, traditional beekeeping still done uh, many places, but they were showing Austria and Switzerland in the mountains. And, you know, I just found it fascinating. And so I decided to to give it a go. And, uh, you know, you're picked by the passion and um, I really found it very interesting. I keep hearing about the good old days when you stuck some hives at the bottom of your garden and most people probably had them a bit like a garden pack and, you know, there wasn't much to it. But basically in the seven or eight years that I've been beekeeping, uh, there's been some problem of, you know, one sort or another. 
whether it's being climatic um, from predators such as the Asian hornets. There's also another um, mite that um, is a huge problem for bees, which is called the varroa. I've even had my hive stolen. You've had your uh, hive stolen. And, um, my goodness. Yeah, it, it, you know, hard to believe, but, um, you know, there's terrible people everywhere. <laughs> So yeah, every year has presented itself with a different I'm, problem. I'm sorry. I just, this, this is, I find this really bizarre. So if someone were to steal your hive, is that because they're wannabe beekeeper or want to make honey or they just I wouldn't, to... I wouldn't say they're a wannabe. I'd say that they are um, a beekeeper and whether they might've lost some hives themselves and they think, oh, okay. oh, you know, great. Here's someone, you know, he has the opportunity to take them. It was in the mountains. Um, they were supposed to be protected, but uh, at this period, they weren't. And yeah, you know, I was checking on them every week, but one week I came up and uh, half of them had disappeared. That and, blows my mind. I know. Well, we, I mean, I think people have the image that all beekeepers are lovely, nature-loving people and, mm. <laughs> and so on. But, <laughs> but basically, you know, there's, there's bastards everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, beehive theft is is rising. It's rampant in the in the United States where beekeepers make more money from pollinating crops than they do from honey. The big crops like almond, they, they need thousands and thousands and thousands of hives and they get paid by the hive. And so apparently there's a hell of a lot of theft that goes on. Yeah, it's crazy. I want to talk about pesticides because that's the leading killer of pollinators. Is that correct? I mean, yes, the Asian hornets are really just decimate a, a hive but overall i know in in there's a figure that in france 75 percent of bee death is linked to pesticides have you experienced that no luckily um that hasn't fallen within the gamut of problems that i've crossed yeah because you're so in far. a really nice uh, natural area so well yes where we are it's not really known for intensive agriculture almost no agriculture the use of pesticides is really only limited to probably people's gardens luckily there's been lots of progress made in that area you probably notice that councils might even have little signs saying that we don't use pesticides and they'll yeah. they'll wait until a lot longer now before they clean the sides of roads and everything else so that they leave all the wildflowers for as long as possible. Talking about pesticides, I read that they're having to move a lot of bees to make sure that the almond trees are pollinated to produce the almonds, but then afterwards they're just using pesticides. A lot of those bees are destroyed. Yes, exactly. I mean, normally bees live in an area where there's biodiversity. You know, you have flowers that bloom for a few weeks and then stop. And then meanwhile, there's other flowers that start. And so there's a cascade of, of different flowers happening for you know a period of months. Obviously, when you have an area which is basically one single monocrop, whether it's almonds or sunflowers or whatever, the bees have to be moved in there because otherwise they couldn't really survive permanently by themselves there because there wouldn't be anything to eat for them you know, after the several weeks of flowering is finished. So, so the beekeepers will move them in and then move them out. And also even, you know, a bit like ourselves, you know, a balanced diet is so important. And, you know, bees that have been made to um, survive on one single type of pollen and, and nectar, they also actually need to recover from that as well before they're given another pollinating job. I was quite traumatized when I watched the scenes, not only of the bees, but that mainly as well for how the honey is harvested and, and there's very little yeah. respect. The video she's talking about is posted on your Facebook page. Yeah. And I've watched it. It's in French. Sorry. <laughs> if you yeah. understand French, really do watch the video because it's, it's shocking. It's really, it's horrifying. Mm -hmm. One, watching the almonds being pollinated and while just because the money machine, you know, they need to start spraying the trees this minute. So while they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for this guy to bring millions of honey onto the orchards. They just start spraying while the bees are there and you're just like watching them dead on the face. Yes, it's horrible. Anyway, so it, it's a series called uh, Produit de Mer, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's really, it's shocking. And, and we'll, I'll put the link uh, down below if you're interested in watching it. Um, and we are going to talk about this film more because yeah. he goes into great lengths about honey fraud. Susie, could you explain why I understand you're not just based in one location? Right now you're um, in a place called Valbon, um, but you actually move between the seasons. Could you explain why you move? Certainly. 
So, um, yeah, as you say, I'm Melbourne at the moment, which is where I live. Spring uh, arrives, you know, anywhere from February. And the joys of living in the south of France. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, and spring is really the main honey flow in most places. Spring is, but um, season finishes with when the heat starts. So um, whereas we're lucky, we've got mountains just behind us. I've got a permit for a plot of land up in Grolier-Lenege, which is 1,400 meters altitude. And so, you know, as you find in the mountains, it's it's wild and it's full of wildflowers. And they have wild lavender up there, isn't that correct? Yes, 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 yes. It's absolutely stunning. Basically, uh, at the end of June, beginning of July, when the honey flow is slowing down in Balbon, then I'll take my hives up to Grolier. I leave them there for all summer while they're collecting honey and I'll do harvest at the end of August, beginning of September. But then it becomes for the autumn period, it's protection for the hives against the Asian hornets because um, they're just rife in the south of France, uh, but they're not in high altitude. So it's a protection place to keep the hives until the end of October when autumn is starting to get pretty cold and the hornets are dying out for for winter. So then it's safe to bring the the hives back down for them to spend winter in Valbon. Bees hibernate in this type of climate. So the honey that they collect throughout the year is their reserves for the winter periods when they can't go out and forage. That's why bees are able to stay in a whole colony throughout winter. That's great. And by having this relocation, does that extend yeah. the time period for all those bees to be able to collect the honey? So in effect, you're getting more honey than if you were to remain in one place. Definitely, definitely. Which in theory is what allows me to um, be able to take a portion of their honey for my use and leave them enough for their use for winter. And every year is different, as I said before. Last year was a terrible honey year all over France, which is quite rare. Sometimes it's one region that affected and not others. But last year, it was really all of France where they had a cold snap, which is very late. And it continued to be quite cool during the rest of spring. So everything was very delayed and a lot of flowering crops were lost, which is why I made very little honey last year after making sure the bees had enough for them to to go through winter. What was left over for me was very little, but all the colonies passed winter very well. They're all strong. And so I'm hoping that this year will be a good honey year. Let's hope so. We hope so too. (laughs) (laughs) So sticking with how people can help protect pollinators, if, if someone has a garden themselves, what can they do to make sure that they're not just going down to the store and buying a big thing of Roundup and yeah well exactly it would be great if Roundup was just completely um, banned there really isn't any pesticides which are good for these I think people need to probably start thinking differently and you know once upon a time it's true people looked at a green lawn that was you know like a golf course and with no weeds and that was what they wanted Whereas I think people are starting to realize that beauty is subjective and um, a wild lawn full of daisies and uh, other flowers popping up, you know, is really beautiful too. It's so good appreciating for the environment. The, yeah, appreciating um, a garden that is full of biodiversity. I've got a really tiny garden at my house, only about 20 square meters. It's full of different different plants, the hedges, it's different varieties. And you make sure that whatever you're planting is local, you know, like it belongs in this environment. So it's not going to need pesticides and different fertilizers. It's adapted already to, to the area that you're living in. And yeah, and having lots of different things so that so that you know things are flowering all the time so obviously yeah to avoid pesticides and herbicides those sort of things and promote biodiversity Mm -hmm. if you are in an area that is got problems with asian hornets i particularly want to mention that their species which has invaded france and a lot of europe so it's not the local european hornet species which arrived in france in 2004 and it's been allowed to just go rampant 
and they are particularly dangerous for bees because they eat them and they have the ability to hover just in front of a hive and just pick off the bees as often as they want it's really amazing to see in a terrible yeah, it, way it, it, i've it, seen it video of them just hovering and they literally just decimate an entire yeah exactly i mean it, um, in the states i've heard that they've even got now this murder hornet who's even bigger and more ferocious and and, and god pray that that never comes <laughs> our poor but, bees <laughs> our poor oh bees. I know, but yeah, I try and encourage people to put up trap for the hornets in their garden. And there are specific traps that will just get the hornets and not. Yeah, exactly. You know, because the size is quite specific to to what can fit in and so on. And uh, and so that can really help. And then, of course, if they actually discover a hornet nest on their land, then, you know, to have it destroyed um, here, normally and to the, call a professional do it yeah exactly you can call a professional but they'll obviously charge you i'm pretty sure there's still a campaign with the department where they'll they'll get rid of them for free because it, you know is so people should contact maybe their local town hall yeah or... they can yeah they can call the council to get information or if they if they look on internet they'll, they'll find the information for sure right so we talked about it being spring and that is when a lot of hay fever starts coming out people's allergies start acting up christine Tell us a little bit about how raw, unpasteurized honey could possibly help people who are suffering from seasonal allergies. So if you eat raw and local honey to the area in which you live, it is possibly, I can't say in all situations and with every single person because we're all so different, it's possibly a natural alternative to an allergy medication. And it also would have other nutrients in it as well. So some people are taking raw local honey instead of what we'd say an allergy shot. So what you would have to do is take a little bit of local honey and build up, it's a teeny tiny bit, and you build up that amount over time so that your immune system has time to build up its own defense against it. So antibodies to fight against it, which it might not have had before. So over when you say time, a tiny little bit, is yeah. that like just a little, like a little coffee spoon? It'd be even less, you know, okay. literally you'd be sticking your tongue at the end. Some people are highly, highly sensitive and get severe reactions. Um, okay. So it would be starting, I say, go low and go slow. And that's with everything. So start low and then build up because then you can prime your in immune system and improve the way that it's actually responding to an allergen. Um, and and we want to be specific about it being local honey to where you live. So you want to, yeah. so that people need to make sure that they find a local honey. Yeah, because people are often developing their, say, hay fever to a pollen within the area that they live. Um, but of course, there are other things involved there. You might need to address gut issues, as in leaky gut that could be causing that in the first place. So it's not just about eating your raw local honey. You might need to work with someone to address this from a broader because, perspective. Because um, gut issues cause all sorts of allergies to things. They I certainly do. And what I'd um, just like to say that I found just um, when I was looking up some information um, in advance of our podcast is that scientists already predicting a rise in pollen production in excess of 200% percent mm -hmm. climate change because heat and increased levels of carbon dioxide, which increase plant growth and the growing seasons will lead to seasonal overlap and increased volumes. So not great news if you're a seasonal hay fever sufferer, because it could extend the period of time to which you actually have your hay fever issues. And worldwide, the sensitization rate to pollen allergens is 40%, and over 400 million people suffer from allergic rhinitis symptoms caused by pollenosis. That's quite a lot. <laughs> that is quite a lot. And normally, the treatment is to take hay fever medicine and those are usually um steroids yeah we don't really it's temporary relief but in the long run it's it can be detrimental to you exactly health. we don't want to suppress the immune system we want to support it 
And we don't want to boost as I mean, I know a lot of people and you see it flying around on marketing literature about boosting the immune system. You don't want to do that as well. It's, it needs to be in balance, the immune system. So it's just about supporting it as much as you can. And corticosteroids are there to reduce inflammation, but they will also suppress the immune system. And they come with masses of side effects and they should be for short term use. But people are mm. often taking them or prescribe them again and again and again, rather than addressing the underlying symptoms but as you and I know that's a whole other podcast in itself <laughs> things that we could talk about for ages yeah <laughs> so allergies aren't the only thing that pure raw honey can be good for um, not to pasteurize stuff in the grocery store and let me just say again if you hear this and you're suffering from hay fever and you think oh I'm gonna reach into my cabinet and give it a try with honey that you've bought at the grocery store that's not going to do anything for you it really needs to be pure local honey to where you live so we will talk at the end about how you can make sure you're buying local pure honey but anyway i digress um honey is actually very antibacterial antifungal anti all sorts of bad stuff um, and if it's real pure raw it can last forever it's full of antioxidants flavonoids phenolic acids so tell us a little bit more about the other great amazing aspects of honey. As you mentioned, there are these antiviral, antifungal and antibacterial properties in there as well. So they have been used um, to reduce infection, um, especially more common bacterial, viral and fungal, fungal infections. They've also, it's also been used actually with thinning bones, osteoporosis, um, possibly due to the magnesium calcium balance in there. Another thing it's been, um, good for is um, sore throats and in things like tonsillitis. I did read about one lady who was completely immune to antibiotics and she was on holiday in Italy when a bout of tonsillitis came up and she was given a propolis, sorry not honey, but propolis which is part of the inside of the hive which Susie can tell us about in a minute. Um, she was given a tincture and this tincture that she took in just five days completely caused her tonsillitis to disappear. So it increased her energy. She had the, all the severe fatigue she had was um, gone. So propolis is probably one of the world's oldest medicines and really supportive to the immune system. It's actually been used since the Egyptian times and uh, was even considered as being very holy. Susie can tell more, but I think of it as being like the glue within, within the inside of the hive. And I think the bees use it to actually as a defense mechanism. So propolis is actually often referred to as bee glue. It's uh, a very sticky brownish product. In fact, the bees collect sort of uh, resins and so on from, from uh, plant buds, leaf buds, uh, often in spring. They add that with their own enzymes, um, a little bit of wax and so on, and they'll use it to um, hive, um, make sure things can't move. They'll also even use it as embalming. So in fact, as we were talking about Egypt, um, the, the mummies of, of Egypt, they used propolis to embalm those people. It is quite an amazing product. For instance, a tincture is, is made, which is mostly alcohol, a little bit of water, but the propolis um, is collected from the hive uh, by a special, um, special frame that I will put on top of the hive. Bees have a habit of filling up any little hole that is smaller than four millimeters with propolis. They don't like holes. So if I put this, this frame, which has got all these little holes in it, a uh, plastic frame, they'll fill it all up with propolis. And then I can take that off and, and collect the, the propolis from it. And then it's ground into a powder and over about four, at least four weeks, soaked with alcohol and um, water to take out the, the various uh, nutrients. And then, yeah, it's a tincture that you can use for um, quite a few things. Um, personally, uh, my whole family, we use it. Uh, I've got it in little spray bottles. Um, I'll spray it at the back of my throat at the very first sign of an itch. You know, it's in the cold season. 
I also used it the last two years. Every time I went outside and was in public and I came back in, I would also give myself a spray as a little bit of uh, antiviral protection. So it's preventivist as well as curing. And we can also use it on our skin as well. So any little cuts and scrape that I get, I put that straight onto it and it makes it heal really quickly. It's pretty vile tasting, I'll be honest. You know, it's a great thing to mix it with honey, especially for children or, you know, for adults, you know, you can you can do a spray or take some drops and then follow up with a spoon of honey, which of course, honey, as we were saying before, has um, fabulous properties as well for soothing. If it's in the case of a, a sore throat, for instance, um, a bit of propolis um, followed by honey is excellent remedy. What about recurring ear infections? Is it something that could be kind of just lightly dropped in the ear for that? Do you know? Um, I haven't tried that, but by taking the propolis orally, uh, it can it can help with all sorts of ailments, um, not even just you know those that you have in contact with you, okay. especially yeah. the anti-inflammatory uh, properties of it. Yeah, I think a lot of it's down to the um, the richness in the flavonoids, which um, plant compounds. There are a huge amount of flavonoids within the raw honey itself, but also in bee pollen and propolis. And it's actually the flavonoids that gives honey its color. The propolis, as you said, it can taste disgusting and uh, comes in sprays and tinctures, but also in capsule form. There is no recommended daily sort of allowance or suggestion for propolis because there aren't actually enough human studies to determine how much propolis should be taken to support various health conditions. So again, it's one of those where you just have to try for yourself and see, but we're starting low, low and slow again. But you should not use propolis if you have asthma or are allergic to bee byproducts, including the honey, because this can actually make the situation worse. Christine, you mentioned that the flavonoids can can vary the color of the honey. That's really interesting. I kind of thought it was just based on the flower because in markets and things, you see the different colors of honey based on what type of honey it is. But um, there's lots of different types of honey. Susie, when you move hives to different locations, you know, often you'll see there's lavender honey or there's chestnut honey and the color can vary so much. Well, definitely. Tell us a little bit about I mean, that. The, the flavonoids are based on the plants and the plants are based on what the bees are visiting. So, you know, bees will visit basically all the flowers um, that uh, they're interested in within a three kilometer radius. So um, bees don't visit every single flower. The flowers that interest them are ones that have pollen and nectar. There are some flowers that have pollen, but not really any nectar so they usually like the ones that have both so they'll visit you know everything within a three kilometer radius if a beekeeper wants to produce honey which is um monofloral so it's you know it's really just concentrating on one uh type of flower such as lavender then he needs to take his hives and put them in a field which really only has that type of flower for three kilometers around and yeah, I would think it's quite um, difficult to have a monotype honey. Well, you know, it depends where. I mean, where we are here near Valbonne, yeah, there isn't any monoculture uh, around. But in Provence, near Valençol, that's well known for its fields of lavender. So that's the big area where hives are taken to make lavender honey. And it's a strict period. You know, the, the flowers come in to flower and, you know, that will last, say, a month. And then the hives are harvested straight after the flowering is finished so that they're only getting that honey that's made during that time. Myself, as you can see, it's, you know, it's forest, it's nature. There are gardens around, but it's a lot of forest. It's really a honey that's multi-floral in French, toute fleur, all flowers, which makes it a, a lot more complex taste. But it will vary, yes, from season to season and year from year. The honey that I get in uh, 2022 um, could be quite different from last year, depending on the conditions of summer. When we see uh, in a market a beekeeper that has lots of different types of um, honeys, hopefully it means that he himself has, um, has got several different groups of bees that he are putting in, in, in specific spots to collect yeah. that type of honey you know we'll talk about honey fraud yeah but that's you know, a hint it, for it, later it's possible, <laughs> yeah it's possible as well that you know they might make three different types of honey but they buy the other ones in because right. you know people want to 
want to have lots of different choice. And, and you'll see that a lot in the market buying, here too. You know, yeah, how how can he control that? You know, it's if he's buying it from someone else and he hasn't seen the production himself. So yeah, that is how different honeys are supposed to be made. Great, thank you. We talked about honey, we talked about propolis, but there's also another superfood that comes from honey. Christine, tell us the nutritional benefits of bee pollen, which are these little kind of granules. Yeah, they're yeah. like granules that you can actually stick on the top of your smoothies or into your smoothies, what have you. Mm. Um, bee pollen are excellent sources, again, a bit like the propolis of vitamins and minerals, amino acids too, type of protein and enzymes. But the exact nutritional makeup of bee pollen depends on which plant the pollen comes from. Mm. So it's going to be changeable depending on the area. It's actually great if you look at some of the articles that are out and about but what we do need to remember is that a lot of the studies have been performed on rodents so far there isn't a huge amount of human research so hmm. we know it's great but we're still having to base this greatness upon anecdotal and the very small human research studies that have been done so maybe there'll be more done in the future but we just need a more robust evidence base to start saying how wonderful it is. We know it is, but why, why do people take bee pollen? I mean, why, why would we want to put it in our smoothie? Um, well, because of the nutrition, that nutritional value, but um, there has been links to it, which is, sounds very strange when you think bee pollen and you think sugar, honey, with actually supporting blood sugar levels. But again, it's most likely down to the rich levels of flavonoids, this plant chemical in there, which can support vascular health. So as well as blood sugar levels, so it improves the dilation of blood vessels and that gives more blood flow. So that overall can actually be quite beneficial to, to health. But there are various claims again out there, but we have to be careful. Yes, everything in moderation is gonna be wonderful for us. But if we're looking at statistics, and um, the studies are all done on rodents, not all done, but very, very few and very small human studies. So Susie, what, what exactly is bee pollen? Yeah, they'll visit flowers which have nectar, the sweet sugary liquid. Um, so that's their carbohydrate energy food. And then the pollen is, is protein. Um, that's their source of protein. And they will use the pollen mainly for feeding the baby bees. And it's, you know, it's one of their protein sources. In the midst of collecting the nectar and the pollen, they're also doing the work of pollinating those flowers. On their hind legs, they've got a little hook. And it's on this hook that they're going to pack the pollen. Um, so, you know, as we sort of know from looking from flowers, the pollen is like a powdery substance. And, you know, they obviously have to get it from the flower back to the hive. So, in fact, they mix it with the saliva and a little bit of the nectar, you know, fashion it into a ball. And one of the things I just adore watching a hive is the bees that are coming back in and, and they've got these, you know, great big yellow, orange, sometimes purple balls stuck on their hind legs sometimes you know, purple um, oh my goodness oh yeah there's amazing and like for instance poppies the pollen is black there's all different colors that come in we call them pollen pants you know because they really look like they've got their little you know sacks on the back <laughs> of their back legs and so they'll bring it into the hive it gets mixed with you know more enzymes and passed around and put into the little cells but when pollen is collected by a beekeeper in fact what they do is they put a little um, special grid at the front of the hive um, so that it's a bit of a narrow opening so that the bee, when it goes through, um, it actually knocks off his, um, his little ball of uh, pollen that pollen he's collected <laughs> as he goes in and it falls through into a little grid. Normally, you know, a beekeeper would put one of those onto a hive, you know, maybe only for a week or something like that uh, to collect pollen because the hive obviously needs pollen too. Bees are so incredibly intelligent that if he leaves um, these pollen traps on any longer the bees work out what's going on and they actually start collecting smaller granules of pollen so that they can come back and bring it in without losing their their, oh, um, losing their, their bounty <laughs> yeah exactly and so for people that are buying pollen i would suggest that they buy the frozen type fresh pollen mm -hmm. that's frozen and you know you can buy that in organic stores and so on um, you can buy it dried as well which is okay, but you know, 
fresh is best, let's just say. Yeah, and as you say, you keep it either in the freezer or in the fridge, don't you? So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, I would recommend, you know, probably a teaspoon uh, a day is plenty and, and maybe not all the time, but it's a great um, coming out of winter um, cure. So if, you know, it's, as you were saying, it, it boosts blood circulation. If you're tired and, and you know, feeling low, it, it is something that helps your immune system to get back into balance and, uh, you know, feel a little bit, feel a little bit better. It's about upping your vitality as well, isn't it? Mm. And I like what you say about it being in the winter period, because it's actually the time when we should be nourishing our bodies. So this is mm. a very nourishing, very rich product. You know, it's how um, much protein is in it. If it's a, if it's the protein of the plant, is it decent source? I think it's up to around 10%. Um, but again, it would depend on whereabouts the bees are actually finding it mm. from what plants are finding. Yeah, there's, there's there's certain flowers which are more interesting than others. Any other nutritional things you want to add, Christine? I think what's really important is to just make sure that when you are looking for these products, if you want to try them, is that you are going for organic um, items and stuff that is local to where you live, if you can get that. Preferably a small local producer rather than, which we were talking so about. Shop at your farmer's market. Yeah, yeah. Go directly to don't go for the mass produced stuff because it's likely right. not to be as good quality. Or honey at all. Or honey at all, exactly. Um, also a note um, about cooking with it because a lot of these constituents that are so beneficial about raw honey get killed in high heat. So if you're cooking with it and baking, it's just going to be a sweetener. It's not going to give you the same benefits of just eating it raw off a spoon and if you also if you're putting it straight into boiling tea that's also going to kill up a lot of that it certainly is you may as well just have a teaspoon of normal sugar in fact it's probably better for you than the mass-produced honey that is full of cheap fillers like water synthetic sweeteners and potentially other harmful chemicals um yeah. it just won't be on the label and we were we were chatting about this just before we started um that a lot of people are taking honey giving it to their kids thinking that they're doing something healthier than sugar but if you're buying that honey from the grocery store a big huge box store we'll name names most likely it's just sugar syrup that either comes from cane sugar or comes from beet sugar or comes from corn and there are a lot of people who have corn allergies that yeah. might be buying honey in the store thinking they're has nothing to do with corn and they're actually having sugar that comes from corn. exactly and producing so you really have to be careful producing the real local stuff is time consuming and a very resource intensive process so the cost should reflect that so if you find cheap yeah. money on a supermarket shelf it's really really not going to be worth the money you'll be much better off to increase your spending and go to um, honey from a local farmer yeah and so that brings us into the fraud part. So we talked about oh, this this film. Can I, can I yeah, add a little please. thing? Yeah. Just when we were talking about cooking um, and you know uh, tea. Um, so what I usually recommend is that you know often when people are making a herbal tea that they'd like to add honey to, um, you know they're going to pour in the boiled water with the tea leaves uh, or you know the other plants. But they usually need to steep it for a while, you know, five minutes, three minutes and so on like that. And when we actually drink the tea, um, you know, it's obviously not boiling anymore. It's, you know, probably yeah. 30 or 40 degrees. Um, so I recommend that that is the moment that you add um, your honey and stir yes. it in. So you absolutely put honey in your tea, really... but let it cool down first. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah. yeah, definitely putting it in with the boiling water is not going to do you any good. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's great in salad sauces and, um, yeah. you know, drizzles over your yogurts or, or uh, you know, things like that. Wherever you can use it in its natural form, it's uh, it's the best possible way. Thank you for adding that. So let's get into the fraud aspect of it. So Susie, you posted this video and, and I'm so glad I watched it because I had known that large brands of honey that could actually stock every single grocery store all over the country is not gonna be 100% pure honey. That I kind of already knew, but to, to see, 
the amount of honey fraud that there is, I was really shocked. This is just for France, okay? One of the things that he showed. So in 1995, France was producing 32,000 tons of honey within France, and they were only importing 7,000. Then you get to 2011, and it inversed a little bit and was almost even. It was France was only producing 20,000 tons and importing 24,000. Then they get to 2014, and France is only producing 10,000 tons of honey and importing 30,000 tons. So there's just been this entire shift of what is produced locally within France and what is imported. Obviously, you know, globalization and the and shipping tariffs and cheap, cheap, cheap prices of imports has been a big effect, but also because bees are dying. And so France is producing a lot, lot less honey. And one of the, the scariest things is that when honey is imported, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's honey. So the EU is very strict on a lot of things, especially food, and they will do tests on what's being imported just to make sure it's all real and everything. And this film goes behind the scenes of how the fraud is done where sugar syrups and different things, it's kind of a formulation. You mix this kind of syrup with that kind of syrup, you heat it up, you add a little bit of pollen so that when they do the test, it says, oh, there's pollen in it. And so the machine clears it, but it's not actually honey. And exactly. you know, they get the consistency right and this and that. And, and before you know it, you're squeezing a little honey bear of just pure sugar syrup and whatever and other things. Up to 20% can be water. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, yeah. And that's within the, the accepted limit. Um, about the water content, it's normal. Honey does have water in it. So mm. when the bees bring in nectar into the hive, it's 80% water content. Very runny if you want. You know, they bring it in and they mix it with their enzymes, docked into the cells. And then, they'll, then it's a process of from everything from fanning to evaporation with the heat and so on. But it gets reduced till it gets below 20. Yeah. When, when it's below 20, the bees will then cap that little cell that's full of honey and with a little bit of a film of, of wax. And, and that's, so that's that kind of, of approval wax if you want. That's that seal of approval that that honey is at the right level of humidity to be conserved for all time yeah. until it's heated. So, exactly. um, so the European Council actually say that the maximum water content of honey has to be 20% for it to be classified as an authentic food product. Because that extra little bit of moisture could then help grow weird things. Mm -hmm. And so it keeps it safer. So the bees know. Well, exactly. The bees know when it's ready. Yeah. The bees know when it's ready and they'll cap it when it's when it's at the right level to be conserved. If a beekeeper is, is harvesting frames of honey, which, you know, can be very much the case of when you've got industrialized honey and it's machines that are doing it. And they're not looking at every single frame that comes up. It's, you know, machines that are all pulling them up um then then it can easily have a, a content um higher than 20 and if left by itself it would ferment and the honey wouldn't be out of store um better industrialized honey is when you know we're talking about volumes take example of the fields of almonds in california they'll have mm -hmm. um, machines that are uh, doing the harvesting it, it's not somebody that's checking to see that the whole frame is capped with wax. Um, and so there could be quite a, a quantity where the moisture is too high. And, and that's one of the, and as well, that there could be bees that are chopped up in the process of the machine. Yeah, so it's, we can, it's absolute slaughter. It was unbelievable to watch yeah. that. It's really horrible. Exactly. So that's the two main reasons why industrialized honey is pasteurized because they have to prevent it um, from fermenting because of the water content and they also have to, you know, clean out um, any uh, bee bits. So that's, I guess, the massive difference between industrialized honey and something that's artisanal, such as what I make, where, as you said, it's a very labor-intensive process. On the on a day that I'm harvesting, um, I'm going to go to, to the hives. I'll be picking up each frame individually. 
first of all, I'll be doing a check to see um, the health of the hive and how many reserves they have and, and making sure that they've got enough reserves to brush off the bees. Normally, I'm taking no bees with me, only the honey frames um, and leaving all the bees in the hive. So then back Unharmed. at my place, <laughs> exactly. Back at my place, got the frames, um, they go by hand, cutting the wax capping off them with a, with a large knife. I don't use a heated knife either. That's a technique that some people use to make it easier, but uh, I'm trying to minimize any contact with heat. So it's the job of, of taking off the wax capping. It goes mm -hmm. into a centrifugic container. You know, and again, I'm turning it by hand. You can get a little motor for that, but I haven't quite got to that stage yet. It takes me about half an hour to do four frames, which would produce about 10 kilos of honey. So it's a process that takes me several days. And then it's a simple process of going through two stainless steel mesh sieves because there's little lumps of wax. Then it goes into a maturator, which is just a big stainless steel tub with a little tap at the bottom. It goes mm. in there. It needs to rest for at least three days. And then if there are still any impurities, they'll float to the top and I can skim okay. those off okay. and then it's ready to be put into bottles. So, wow. um, Great. No heat processing. <laughs> no heat whatsoever. I really avoid it. When we say that um, honey can last forever, you know, it can definitely in the right conditions. By law, for instance, I need to stick a date on my jars. So, you know, it's the, the standard two years. Mm. But when honey has been correctly harvested, correctly put into sterile bottles and kept correctly, there's no reason for it to not last five years, 10 years, you know, whenever, you know, you should store your honey in a dark cupboard, cooler, the better. A lot of people love the runny honey because it is easy to drizzle that all over the things. Almost all honeys will eventually crystallize. So that's an So this, this where, leads me to another um, question of, of yeah. it being a, a good sign of real true honey is if it crystallizes is that correct yeah exactly exactly because uh i mean those honeys that you can see that are in stores they might have been uh, on your shelf for a year and if they're still liquid well <laughs> you can be pretty sure it's not real honey yeah unless okay. i think the only honey that will never crystallize is a cassia um honey okay. so uh um that's that's probably and the that's only exception. really light yeah and quite and yeah, really light, you know a lovely honey Pretty much, and and then depending on what type of flowers, uh, honeys will crystallize sooner or later. It's based on the fructose glucose balance of of the honey. So, for instance, lavender honey is one of the quickest that will crystallize, and so which is why you almost only ever find lavender honey in the the creamy variety. They'll call it creamed honey. So, but where can we find your wonderful local honey? Usually I sell it only through the goat farm in Valbon. They've got a lovely little boutique where they sell their fresh goat's cheese. They even have a little market as well on Saturday afternoons. Whereabouts in Valbon is this farm that they can go and buy your honey and maybe even local goat's cheese? The goat farm, it's called La Chevrerie de Valbon, mm -hmm. and it's opposite the Lycée Simone Vey. And at the moment, it's very cute to visit there. They've got a few baby goats and quite popular. And how do we look for your honey? Is it just your name? Well, mine is the only honey that's sold there. It's simply my name is my, my brand, if you want. So Susie Ravier Apicultrice. Unfortunately, since the harvest last year was so so low, I have just in the last week run out of any honey stocks. But Which is uh, another sign thinking... of real, real honey because there yeah, isn't that much. And exactly. so if you see a if you see a market with just like jars and jars and jars and jars and jars and jars, every time you see them, then it's not all theirs, probably. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, I think um, when you go to a market, it's really good to talk to the beekeeper. Are they the actual beekeeper or are they reselling? How many hives do they have? Where are they? Get to know a little bit about it. And you um, can ask if they import honey from elsewhere. Exactly. Because, you know, they might say, yes, this one is mine. This one I, I buy from a friend. But yeah, hopefully they're, you know, honest in their answers. If you aren't able to get to Valbone, make sure that you search out local beekeepers and honey farms uh, in your area. You might have to can maybe drive into the hills if you have some, 
Um, but even in deserts and things like in Phoenix, Arizona, I know that there are local bee producers as well. So there are bees everywhere and that means there's honey everywhere. So make sure you go to farmer's markets, ask questions, ask if it's been imported. Oh, also want to mention price because we can find honey in grocery stores anywhere from two to five euros, even two to five dollars. What do you suggest, Susie? What is a real, there's a range, of course. Yeah. What would you say is a decent price? Well, I mean, what a beekeeper survives, I don't know. I mean, luckily I don't have to survive on my honey sales. Honestly, uh, I don't count my hours. And if I did, you know, it, it would be a hundred euros a pot of honey whereas whereas at the moment I really just marketed it what I think is decent I mean a 500 gram pot of honey I sell it at 14 euros I base that on what I'd consider similar quality products anywhere from you know 25 to 15 for a kilo is the minimum about 15 to 30 euros is a good range uh, yeah, for, I, think so. I think so. I mean, it definitely depends on regions. I would try and go for a honey that's been put in the put in the pot by the beekeeper. That's already something to look for. It's not an amalgamation of um, of right. barrels of honey bought from different locations to put up. The fact that honey has been around since antiquity. You know, before it was considered a food, it was considered a medicine. And, you know, it was something precious. And as you said, you know, something from the gods. There was so much respect, you know, for the bees mm. and this, this amazing product that they produced. Whereas everything, whether it's from globalization to, to marketing and so on, I feel like it's just been um, made a commodity. And, you know, people don't even think about where it comes from and, you know, what is, you know, uh, involved in producing yeah. it. And, you know, they just put it in the same barrel as jam, you know, jam and honey. That's what you put on your bread. It is quite precious. different. And, and it, yeah, it is precious. My husband adores honey. But funnily enough, ever since I've been producing it, he actually eats less honey than he did before. Because he appreciates it. <laughs> yeah, because now he does. He really appreciates everything that goes into to making a good honey. He eats it with a little bit more intent, I should say. I mean, in some ways, honey should be a lot more expensive, but there should be much greater controls. And as yeah. you see, the controls that are in place at the moment are letting fraudulent honey through. They need to, to get serious and invent tests, which are a lot more stringent to make sure that, you know, honey is, is honey when you buy it yeah. and it's not something yeah. else. All right. Well, thank you so much, Susie. It's been very informative and educational learning about how honey is made and how labor intensive it is and how precious it is. So everyone that thinks they're getting the health benefits from, from their honey, uh, make sure that you're getting good honey that is actually honey and make sure you pay for it because if you're not, you're probably not getting honey. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, well, Nicole. Thank you, so much. Thank, you, thank you, Susie. Thank you for watching. I hope you enjoyed and you've learned things and make sure to like and comment um, if you have any questions and subscribe to our channel too. We're just getting started and share it with anyone you want to share it with. <laughs> and we'll see you at our next episode. Stay tuned. Thank you.